This is the Dice Tower Network, adding games to your wish list since 2005. The home of smart people, insightful board gaming commentary, and Luke Hector. Find out more at Dicetowernetwork.com. Well, summer has come and gone already, so let's see if this will brighten up someone's day at least. Starting off with first impressions of We Didn't Play Test This and the new second edition version of The Pursuit of Happiness, followed by my reasons for departing from the Game of Thrones LCG recently, and then my top 10 most played games. Hello and welcome to a summer that is not exactly a typical summer, shall we say. Yeah, Britain's not really going through great times at the moment and the weather is certainly not helping. But we'll have to overlook that sort of thing and concentrate on board games. But not until after I've mentioned a couple of points. First off, yes... The housing, it's still going along, this whole fiasco with trying to get the contracts exchanged, it's still happening, but I have had some good news. Apparently the buyer is going to start paying up on Saturday, which means that, fingers crossed, on Monday I'll be exchanging for the new house, and then I will be high as a kite. I'm trying not to get my hopes up too much now because I've learnt not to trust third parties with a certain degree of caution, but if... Monday can go ahead and there's no backsies, then fantastic. I can start getting on with getting everything ready for the new house when I move there in September. I already know most of what I'm going to get and certainly the games room, I know what that's going to be like. So cannot wait to get everything rolling for that. But reviews are still coming out. You're going to see Agricola Revised Edition. You will see Via Nebula. You will see the expansion to Mysterium. You'll see Targi. You'll see the Versus system, the superhero card game, that is, and many more. So there's certainly a lot of reviews to get done before I eventually, fingers crossed, have to move out of this property, which will happen sometime around mid-August. Because, unfortunately... One of the caveats of getting this buyer was that I had to move out early in order so that their daughter could move in before school started, basically. And as a result, that means I've had to find short-term accommodation for a month, and that might put a little bit of a hiatus on the blogging for that period. Not to a a complete shutdown extent, no. But certainly, I'm not going to be taking all my board games to my temporary accommodation. I'll take, like, a few, you know, small ones. And I'll have my PC there, but that's about it. I'm not going to have much more there because I can certainly not pack everything into one room while I'm in the short-term place. Essentially, my friend's dad's going to lend me a room in their big house and that should suffice. But what I'll try to do is I'll try to get as much content ready before I go. Failing that, I will take a couple of games I need to review during that period and certainly get some reviews out during that time. If I'm fortunate enough to be in a room where they can't hear me talk on a podcast, then I might be able to do more episodes during that time and see how things go that way. But certainly just bear with me for that month, okay? It's going to be a bit of a rocky ride from mid-August to mid-September, but I promise you, things will improve. Things are going to get better. As soon as I'm settled into the new house, I will be, you know, obviously carrying on the reviews and podcasts as I was, but I'll certainly look into getting a Kickstarter or a Patreon or something like that 
that set up so that I can upgrade the equipment for this podcast, get some better microphones, get some better headset, get a better, you know, just generally better everything, and a camera so that I can also get back into video. So there's certainly something to look forward to come the autumn season. Of course, the biggest announcement is that coming up in July slash August will be no doubt the third anniversary of when I started doing the Broken Meeple podcast and blog in general. And so that means I'm going to have to do something special. And yet again, I think I'll be doing this every anniversary, to be honest, but it's going to be not only just my top 75 games, it's going to be my top 100 games. Yes, I will do a top 100 in full for the end of July time. I'll be splitting it into several episodes because I'm not going to talk about 100 episodes in one go. Sorry, 100 episodes. I'm not going to talk about 100 games in one full swoop because I will lose my voice and never be able to talk for the next month. And I kind of need that for a lot of things. So I will break it down into episodes, maybe sort of 20 at a time, maybe 25 at a time. I don't want to do 10 episodes of 10. That might just get a little bit fiddly, but we'll see how things go. It may just work out better that way. But you are going to see, uh, well here really, an official top 100 games of the Broken Meeple. And I'd, I'd better get started on sorting out that list because if it's anything like last year, it does take a long time to come up with that list. And the rules will be that I will not look at my previous list, so I will not be able to remember where all the placements were. I will do this entirely from scratch. And then what I'll do is I'll compare the results for this year compared to last year. Now, obviously, I only did 75 last year, so I won't be able to do like the uh, full comparison. But certainly, if anything dropped off the list entirely, or if anything's taken a huge shift, then I'll be able to talk about it then. But let's get on with the rest of the episode. Two first impressions, a one more game segment, and then the top 10. Let's move on. First up is one of the most random games I think I've played in my entire history of playing games. This was a bit of a surprise at the UK Games Expo where we just turned up to a random table and we got shown this game and a couple of friends of mine loved it so much that they went out and bought a copy pretty much instantly. It's essentially a silly little party game called We Didn't Play Test This At All. Now I say silly little, that doesn't necessarily mean bad. Wait, wait it out here, okay? This is published by Asmadi Games and essentially it's designed to fill in that, literally, that 30 second to 5 second 30 second to 5 minute period when you just need something to play very quickly until people turn up. It is one of the most random games I've ever played and it's it feels a bit like flux in many ways. Essentially, you're dealt a couple of cards and the cards literally tell you what they do. Anything from place in front of a player and if they don't get rid of it, they lose. Or everybody does rock, paper, scissors and on free, whoever didn't do scissors loses, you know, that kind of thing. And basically, the card will literally tell you what to do. You know, the rules are the cards, basically. And it's a case of who wins and who loses. And it is just complete chaos from that moment forth. There are times when you won't even get a turn in this game. It is that chaotic. But it's a bit of a laugh. I probably will burn out on this at some point because, let's face it, we've already played it several times in the short period since the UK Games Expo. But it's a bit of a laugh. Flux has the problem of going on way too long when it gets going. I mean, it changes the rules every five seconds, but it never seems to reach its end goal except on rare occasions. You just end up playing it for far too long. 
This one should not take you more than 10 minutes in any game, and 10 minutes is a long game. That's when people just refuse to lose. There are times when this can end in 30 to 60 seconds. It can be that quick. So it does the perfect job of just filling in whatever tiny little time gap you have in between games. It's not the most hilarious thing ever, but it does generate enough laughs to keep you going. It's certainly, for me, much more preferable than Flux, and in the end, it's just a silly little card game. It's, it's pretty harmless. It doesn't resort to crude humor like Cards Against Humanity does. It just adds in a lot of surreal randomness and just lets everybody make their own fun with it. It's, like I say, it's harmless. I don't think it's the best thing ever. But for a game that has a title like that and is essentially just a bunch of cards with text on white surfaces, what, what would you really expect? It's a cheap little filler and it does a decent enough job of it. I, I don't really want to praise it too much, but I certainly can't hate it either. It's just, it's there. Certainly, I only want to play this like a couple of times and then let's get on with a better game, but it does the job. It's not going to be something I'll get, but I already know at least one or two people who have got it, so I'm sure it's going to get played over and over and over again. And next up is The Pursuit of Happiness. Now, hang on a minute. Didn't you just do a review of this in your first audio episode? Yes, I did. But I also said I was going to comment on the second edition when it came out in May. Now, I've had a chance to play this game since I've acquired the second edition. Yes, I've sold the first one and got the second one now. And... Predominantly, it's the same game. It's still the barrel of laughs that I had before. It's still a fantastic game and one of my probably, spoiler alert, top 25 games of all time. Now, what's changed though? This is the second edition and there have been a few updates. So I just wanted to give some feedback on that. Essentially, aside from a bit of tweaks to the graphic design, the game looks pretty much the same. It's still got the same bright and colourful exterior, it's still got that bright board, not too busy, the cards still retain the same format, but there's been a couple of changes to the graphic design to make it easier to identify cards. So, all in all, not a massive change in the exterior department, but enough to make it better. What really sets this more apart, though, is the rule changes. There have been some tweaks to the rules which really have made a solid difference. So I just wanted to go through a few of these so that you can see where I'm coming from here. First off, there's been some streamlining. Now, in the past, short-term happiness was a bit of a weird kettle of fish. It basically only worked on when you took new personal projects. That was it. It only worked on that, and it was a bit confusing to tell people that it only worked on this and not the rest of projects. Well, now, short-term happiness works on anything you do with any project. Whether it's a one-off, a group one, a level one of a personal, or leveling up one, it works on all of them. So it just streamlines it and makes it apply to everything. So much easier to now explain that point. And now short-term happiness actually has more usefulness to it. People actually want to get short-term happiness now and retain it, certainly to level up a lot of projects, and it works quite well. On items, you can actually now level up items now. This was something that we called for in the first edition, and I'm glad to see they've implemented it here. Essentially, with the items, you chose a level, and you bought the item at that level, and you had a certain upkeep, or maybe not an upkeep if you were just too cheap. But you couldn't then change it. You were stuck on that level. Here now, you can upgrade the items. You just simply pay the new cost, and get the new bonus, and have a new upkeep. And that's it. 
And sometimes that's worth doing if you want to have the upkeep that gets you points rather than resources, which is how the items tend to work. So again, a very small but very welcome change. We've now got a few extra little mini expansions thrown in, in a sense, since the stretch goals for the second edition came into play. First up, we've got pets, which function mostly like items, but they level up by themselves. You buy them at level one as a little baby, and then they level up every turn. For Well, not for free. You still have to pay the money, otherwise they die, um, because you can't take care of them. That sounds really morbid. But essentially, you have to pay the upkeep, and they level up automatically. You don't get a choice in the matter. And then eventually, somewhat heartbreaking, you get to the end and it's a bit like putting down old Yella. You know, you have to say bye-bye to your pet, it gets you some more points, but then your pet's gone. That's generally what happens through life, but it's a nice, very simple, very easy one to teach. It pretty much functions the same way as a project that levels itself. Pretty simple to teach, and it is quite funny to say that somebody had a goldfish or a llama or some other weird exotic pet, because I think you can even get monkeys. Who has monkeys for a pet? Um, In terms of other ones, you've got the events. Now, events, I can take or leave this one. It's not the best thing to come in this game, but it's a nice little extra. Essentially, you draw an event which will take effect at the next round, and the idea is, is that you have the current round to prepare for it. It will either be a positive bonus you could get, or it will be a penalty that you want to avoid. But you have the current round to meet a certain condition or criteria in order to gain or avoid the card itself. So it adds a little bit of sort of forward planning into your turn. You could choose to ignore the event and just take it, or take the take the penalty, or lose the bonus and just not care. But it gives you something else to aim for in a turn if you want to, you know, maximize it all. Now, remember all those letters you saw at the top right of the projects that meant nothing before? Well, now they actually do. They essentially stood for things like technology and science, arts, political, that kind of thing, and it just distinguished what type of project it was. In the first edition, it meant Jack. There was no need for it, it was just there. Well, that's because they had this in mind already. The idea is is that now you have trends. These function a bit like life goals, the uh, endgame objectives, and the point of them is that three of them, well, sorry, not three, a certain amount based on the number of players will come out at the start of the game, and you will get points depending on how many of a certain type of project you complete during the game. You can aim for these especially, or you can just ignore them entirely. Again, it's more variety and more ways to score points, which I always like in games. It doesn't force you to do a particular path, but now you have more options, and more options is always good. Well, up to a point. If you've got like 20 options on your turn, it's just going to get overwhelming. But it's not the case here. It's a very simple thing to add, and I will always use it no matter what. Aside from that, you've got a few thematic changes, like the jobs now have individual job titles, which makes a change. You know, it's not just social science and arts job. Now, yes, you do have those three categories, but you also have a definitive name for each particular job and it just makes it that little bit more thematic when you say that I am a CEO or I'm a salesman or I'm an executive you know or I'm a politician as opposed to I'm a science job you know it, it just adds a little bit extra and you've got a few extra little weird jobs in there that you don't actually level up from one to three they just are their own little job like a farmer But what you do is that you take the job, it'll get you a little bit of money, but each turn you can work harder, quote-unquote, and potentially get some more money, but you have to sacrifice a little bit in order to do so. Nice, easy jobs to maintain, but 
won't get you as much as a typical job. So they're a nice little addition as well. All in all though, I still love this game. I think the second edition has made what I loved before even better. Whether it's graphical changes, rule changes, or just adding more stuff. This is still one of my favourite Euro games. I still love teaching this to people. Granted, there's a lot to take in at first. So, you know, I wouldn't say this was a gateway game by any means. I think this would be more of a gamer's game. But there's still not too... It's not that complicated as long as you get through the iconography. And it's just great to play this game and live out your life however you like. I still get a kick out of hearing the stories that other people have done. I still love seeing what develops in front of me and what the other players are doing. I've seen some great plays. It doesn't matter whether you win or lose, it's just a great load of fun. Pursuit of Happiness 2nd Edition, still love it based on first impressions of the new changes. Now, normally on these One More Game segments, I tend to choose a game that's at least over a year old, usually longer, particularly like two to three years since I started the blog. On this occasion, I'm choosing one that's a bit more recent, and that is my news that I have departed from the Game of Thrones LCG. That is the second edition of the Game of Thrones LCG that was released last year. Now, it wasn't that long ago it was released, obviously, so it seems a little premature. However, and I was enjoying this game to begin with, I really did like the way that the cards uh, mingled together. I liked the theme, and I really liked the melee mode that was the multiplayer function. However, I have a feeling that it was the melee mode that maybe warped my view of the game initially. Now, Game of Thrones LCG is not a bad game. A lot of the problems I have with it are my own personal nitpicks. Some people don't mind these. Some people are like, well, we can wait a while, let some more cards come out, and then it will improve. But for me, I wasn't willing to wait around long enough for the cards to come out to fix these problems. And not every single problem I have with the game is fixable by cards. So what what went wrong? Well, Game of Thrones LCG has lots of different factions. It has Night's Watch, it has Tyrell, it has Stark, it has Lannister, it has all the ones that you know from the classic series. Uh, Maybe not some of those lesser ones like the Boltons, for example, but they may turn up. I believe they did turn up sort of in a small way in the first edition, but I digress. Now, the problem with having that many factions is that it's difficult to give each one the same amount of love. Now, Android Netrunner started off with this similar flaw, but I think that they actually got their base core deck sets spot on. I think they did really well with the Android Netrunner core set, and throughout the first couple of cycles, all the factions were still pretty good. I mean, they were still pretty playable. There wasn't really a weak element. And when I joined Netrunner, there was already a few more cards in the system anyway, so I started from scratch and bought a lot of cards, and so by the time I joined, all the factions were fairly balanced in how they were. There wasn't really like a direct outsider that never won tournaments. Problem with Game of Thrones, though, is that the balance is still not quite right, and I don't think it will be sorted for a considerable long time. The Night's Watch and Tyrell are regarded as the two weakest factions in Game of Thrones LCG. This is a common thought amongst a lot of players, particularly the tournament goers, and if you look at tournament reports, you will notice that the vast majority of the time it is the same three factions that constantly keep winning. Lannister... Targaryen and Baratheon. 
Those three are constantly winning tournaments, or some combination of them anyway, because you can banner other factions. But they are just consistently more powerful for tournaments than the others. And it's difficult to balance that many factions, and I think they overreached themselves with this. So far, two of the factions are only playable if you like some casual fun. And tournaments, you just see the same decks every time. And I don't just mean the same factions, I mean the same deck. Literally, people will have the same cards in the deck. Now, honestly, I will give it, you know, props that this is because there's not enough cards in the set. You know, it's only had one full cycle and a major expansion so far. That's not enough cards to get a great deal of variety in that many factions. But even saying that, I think it would still take far too long before there is any variety. I mean, we've had a full cycle. You'd think there'd be more archetypes to build your decks around. But there just isn't. It's the same style of play. It's the big bomb characters, as many copies of them as you can, and then supported by an economy package that is usually pinpoint exactly the same for every single deck, because they just seem to have given you a few decent economy cards, and now you have to have them in a deck to even function. And it's just not going to sort itself, because you can't get enough cards to boost each faction. When each chapter pack gets released, you've only got 20 different cards in the pack. And between 8 factions, including neutrals as well, each faction is lucky enough to get 2 cards each. And a lot of the times you'll open a pack and the 2 cards will be meh. Or sometimes, particularly with a Night's Watch, you tend to open a pack and they tend to be rubbish. It's just not going to sort itself. Even at the end of the whole second cycle, it's not going to have enough cards. I think it's going to take at least three cycles and deluxe expansions on top to give the the factions enough cards to play with. And considering the next deluxe expansion they've got on the cards is Lannister, who, let's face it, they have enough powerful cards already, they don't need more. It just seems like a miss, a miss on the mark there for the development team. Now, the other thing was the melee mode. The melee mode is my favourite way to play this game. I think the multiplayer aspect of this game is what makes it great and unique. Unfortunately, melee mode seems to never get played, particularly in the local meta around Portsmouth, because everybody's all about Joust. Joust is the official main type of game that you get in tournaments. Now, there are melee tournaments about, but they are few and far between. They are rare. Around here locally, though, whether it's Bournemouth, Brighton, Bristol, London, wherever, it's always Joust. And Joust is the classic one-on-one duel. One-on-one duels are fine, but I don't think Joust is as good a game in this as Melee is. And I really liked Melee. I like the fact that you could negotiate with other players. I like the fact you had the titles that you could take each round. And you never knew what titles were going to be missing from the round. And each one gave you a bonus or allowed you to get bonus points to attack certain players or made you immune to attacks from others. It was a really cool system. But nobody plays it. Nobody was playing it after I got into the game. And it just really was a bit of a downer for me that not enough people were willing to play the melee mode. Certainly not in a tournament setting. I eventually got a bit burnt out with Joust. And with my other issues with the development of this game, it just really didn't gel well for me that that was the case. Other little nitpicks I had were certain rules in the game which I know can't be fixed because they're in the game. One of them being the dupes rule, as they call it, which is that if you have a duplicate of a unique card on the table, a character, let's say you put out Rob Stark, 
then you could put another copy of the same character behind it and it effectively acted as an extra life. So if things said kill this character, you could get rid of the duplicate and the character would still be saved. Now this was a problem. Because I already mentioned that most decks would just basically get the big bomb characters out and leave it as that, it just meant that the duplicate rule could swing games far too easily. If you were lucky enough to draw two copies of your best hero in your deck and get it out whilst the opponent was unable to get their hero or only got one copy of his, chances are you were going to win. You had such a huge advantage over your opponent because even if it just came down to a war of attrition, his hero would die entirely and could never be resurrected and then you would lose one copy of your dupe and you would still have the hero left. So luck of the draw is a factor in LCGs in general, but luck of the draw in this game in particular just swung the game far too much. If you drew a bad starting hand or a bad setup because you effectively drew a hand of cards and then set up a certain amount of gold's worth of cards at the start of the game, if you drew badly for setup, you're done. You know, first turn meant everything in this game. And if you just drew badly, you know, pure unluckiness, you're done. Your opponent only has to draw better than you did, and he will have such a huge advantage that you will, chances are you will not recover from. It just was far too swingy. So with these things in mind, the dupes rule, the fact that the cards and decks were never going to be varied for a long time, the fact that the factions were just completely out of whack in balance, there was just too many nitpicks that I had with the game to really want to continue it. And reviewing data packs takes a while. You've got to talk about 20 different cards after having either previewed them or tested them yourself. That takes a lot of time for what is essentially a 10 quid expansion pack. So it was starting to get to the point where I thought I am neglecting my two favourite LCGs, Android Netrunner and Lord of the Rings the card game, by playing this third one. Trying to keep up free was too much. Now money wasn't an object here because obviously I was getting I was buying my own Lord of the Rings stuff, but Android Netrunner and Game of Thrones are partially review copies. So that makes that life a little bit easier. But coming, putting on three at a time, yeah, that was just too much. I had to ditch one, and if you're going to put me in a room and say choose between those three, it's going to be Game of Thrones, no matter which way you look at it. Even if you told me that I would only get to play melee mode of Game of Thrones for the rest of its days... I would still kick out Game of Thrones before I kicked out Android Netrunner and Lord of the Rings the card game. Those two games are just too good. I'm so invested into Netrunner it would be a shame to pull out at this point anyway, but I love the game. And the same goes for Lord of the Rings the card game. I just haven't given it enough love lately, and it deserves it, because I really enjoy that game. And I had a I had a game or two recently, actually, when I was going through the uh, Land of Shadow Saga expansion and I took uh, hobbits through the Deadly Marshes because I'm basically on a personal quest to go to Shelob and kill her because I hate spiders and therefore giant spiders need to die. And it was just so enjoyable to do it again. So Game of Thrones had to go. I understand that a lot of people will listen to these nitpicks and think, no, he doesn't know what he's talking about. This is, this is, I'm fine with those. I like the dupes rule, that kind of thing. And that's great. I don't think Game of Thrones 2nd Edition LCG is a bad game. I think it has missed the mark on a few development points though. I think it needs to seriously balance its factions better and get the card pool to a state where it's not all just about play the big bomb characters in the same economy package because the deck deck designs online are just boring. Nobody's got any variety. Nobody's got any cool little janky combos or anything because frankly they don't work and everybody's obsessed with tournament play. 
I only go into tournaments that are local casual store ones. I'm never going to go into a nationals tournament ever again for an LCG. I just don't see the point. As soon as you take it out of casual mode, the game stops being fun. You know, casual tournaments are fine. Local store tournaments, they're nothing major. They're just little things, you know, 12 people. Takes up a bit of a day. That's another thing because tournaments do take up a lot of time. But the nationals... Yeah, I did it one year at the UK Games Expo. I am not going to spend nine hours of my expo time playing an LCG tournament ever again. So, Game of Thrones 2nd Edition LCG, it had its run. It had a good time for about, what would say, nine months or so by the time I got hold of it. But, one more game? Nah, I'm done. Okay, moving on to the top 10 list, and this is a quite a simple one, really, because after all, I'm going to be doing my top 100 in the next few episodes, and I needed a simpler one for this list, so my top 10 most played games is for this episode. Now, this was a pretty easy deal. I log my plays on BoardGameGeek. Granted, it's not 100% accurate. There are times where I've forgotten to log a play and missed it out, but generally, these are reasonably accurate figures. Now, I am not going to quote how many times I've played a game, because it's all relative. I might have played a game, let's say, 50 times as a rough as a rough number, and somebody will come along and go, oh, I've played this game 150 million times, and I, I have played this four-hour Euro game 50 times, and this little party filler 127 million times, and therefore your argument is invalid. Blah, blah, blah. Nah, I just, I just don't get that. You know, it's all relative as to how often you get to play a game. Do you think that most people on the Dice Tower are able to play the same game a hundred times over? No. You know, some of their favourite games, they're lucky if they can play them once every six months. They still love the game. So I'm not going to be quoting figures. This is just, in terms of my rankings, This are these are the ten top games, well, a couple of honourable mentions, so the twelve most played games. The ones that have got to the table far more often than others. And you might notice one or two surprises on this list. Uh, certainly, I think there's a few you should expect, but... Don't just assume that every game on here is a filler. Let's put it that way. And don't expect that a certain favourite game is going to necessarily be my number one. So we'll we'll get on to that later. For now, well, well, no, not, no, not for now. Let's get moving. Go, 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 go. Number 10 has had a lot of plays... Mainly because, not necessarily because it's my favourite game ever, you know, I, I'm alright with it, it's in my collection, but it's mostly because it's one of the best things to pull out when teaching a game to someone who has never even laid eyes on a game before, let alone something like Monopoly, and that is No Thanks. No Thanks is a classic little filler. It takes less than a minute to teach the game and takes less than five minutes to play the game as long as people don't AP like crazy. And even then, you're talking a quarter of an hour max. This is a very quick, very easy filler game. And it's just so simple. You have tokens to use as lives so that you don't have to pick up a card. One card is bidded on every round and you're trying to get the least points. And if you collect them in sequential order, you only score the bottom card 
and then that's the way it works. And your tokens are worth minus one point. There you go. That's pretty much the rules. Granted, that's not a brilliant explanation, but that's really all you have to teach, just in some better logical order than I did. So this is a very easy gateway game, and probably one of the most essential games you should have in your collection, just purely for teaching newcomers to the industry. And as a result, because it's so quick and easy, and because it fits that gateway category perfectly, No Thanks has got a lot of plays. So it deserves number 10. Number 9 was in my top 10 last year with the top 75 and it still remains one of my favourite games to this day. It's so cutesy, it's so charming, I love moving the little miniature around and going om nom 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 on a regular basis, it's Takinoko. Takinoko has gone down so well when I've introduced it to newcomers. Uh, I have to admit, looking at my list, I would say there's at least 1, 2, 3, 4, 5... Five, yeah, five games, uh, yeah, five games, and one honorable mention that would fit the gateway game category, and that's because gateway games are easy enough to get to the table. I find myself teaching new gamers much more often than I am playing with heavy veteran seasoned gamers. Let's put it that way, and therefore gateway games get played a lot. But Takinoko is one of my favourite games of all time. Just so charming, just so nice. It just relaxes me every time I play it, and the expansion chibis pushed it up to a whole new level of enjoyment. I've got little like custom baggies for all the bamboo pieces, you got the little miniatures. Oh, I love it so much that I've got the deluxe version in a giant crate for taking to to like Dice Portsmouth events where I can show it off and teach it to new gamers. It's such a great game. Number nine, Takinoko. Number 8 was a bit of a surprise for me actually, I didn't realise how much I had played this game. I do really enjoy it, but I am starting to get a little burnt out on the base version of it. But the base version is one that can easily be played by you know gamers who just haven't seen it before. I wouldn't really call this a gateway game despite some people's objections to that statement. I just don't think it's easy enough to understand all the iconography. But with expansions, I really do love playing this one. And because it can deal up to you know 7 or 8 players... It can certainly take a crowd and not take so long to play, and that is Seven Wonders. I love it with the expansions. I think the Babel expansion really helped it, although it's difficult to get that one to the table because not many people have played it, and whenever it gets suggested, I either don't have my copy with me or people say, oh, can we just play the base set? It's like, oh, do we have to? I really like the expansions. So how long I'm going to keep playing a base set is another day, but for now, it has had a lot of plays just because it fits a large group of people and there aren't many good games that can fit a large group of people that aren't party games. So it's nice to see a typical Euro on the list getting played a lot by me and deservedly so. Seven Wonders is a fantastic drafting game and definitely worth a try. So number eight, Seven Wonders, preferably with the expansions. Number seven is the ultimate classic filler game. There is no filler game more classic than this one, and that is because AEG refused to let this one die out of your subconscious because they keep releasing set after set after set after set after set. 
it just gets ridiculous with this now. We have got the uh, typical version. We've got Japanese. We've got Hobbit. We've got Batman. We've got Munchkin, I believe. God knows what's next. You know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if Star Wars was next. I bet that's missing its chance. Yep, the classic love letter. Love Letter is just so easy to bring out. It's in a titchy little box. I have the Batman version. It is my preferable version of Love Letter. But even with the original one that came in a little pouch, it was just so quick. Oh, guys, we've got five minutes before Matey's going to turn up. Love Letter? You just chuck it out. Everybody knows how to play it by now. And if they don't, it takes you less than a minute to teach it. That simple and that easy to get to the table. So, of course, it's going to get a lot of plays. Now, I actually thought this one would be higher. I thought I'd played Love Letter more times than my logs had suggested. Maybe I'd missed off a few, who knows. But maybe just other games were really more popular than this one for me. But I'm not surprised to see this one on the list. And it's going to stay in my collection. And I still use it as a classic gateway game to teach to newcomers alongside No Thanks. So Love Letter takes my number seven. Out of all the games on my list, I think this one is probably the one I've owned for the least amount of time. Possibly my number three was owned for less time than this. So I'm going to hazard a guess number three is my least owned game time-wise. But this is definitely the second least. And it's so impressive that it made my number six in terms of games played. And that's because I love it. It's Bang the Dice Game. Bang the Dice Game, like with a lot of others, takes a big group of players, and I always prefer to play this with at least six, if not the full complement of eight, and it's very easy. Everybody who's played King of Tokyo knows how the dice mechanic works. You've got hidden roles, the character abilities are varied and easy to understand, but it just generates such a good laugh around the table as everybody claims to be the sheriff's deputy, and everyone's pointing guns left and right and shooting people just for the sake of it, or accusing people of being on the opposite team. It's just fantastic. I really like Bang the Dice game, and I always have it in the bag because it's a... I suppose the box would be a little bit smaller, but it doesn't take up much space and plays up to eight players very quickly. Well, very quickly. Some eight-player games have gone a bit long. I must admit, some people do seem to take a bit too long to figure out what to do with their five dice. I mean, come on, guys. It's not really rocket science. But it's a great game to play nonetheless, even when it does take a little while, because it's just funny to watch it. Even if you got eliminated early, it's still a good laugh to watch and see what happens, see whether you can figure out who's who and who's making false claims and who's getting into the roleplay, because roleplaying this actually does help a lot. Number six, Bang, the Dice Game. My number five. I bet a lot of you expected this to be number one, didn't you? The amount of times I rave about it. Well, no. There are four games that I have played more times than this, but that doesn't stop this one from being my all-time favourite game. And that is Sentinels of the Multiverse. Woo, spoiler alert. Now, who knows? Maybe it won't be my number one in the top 100. Who knows? You'll just have to wait and see. But... Here, it's my fifth most played game. I have played this a lot of times, and I'm not even including iPad games, because I think on the iPad it doesn't really count. You can play a lot of games on the iPad much quicker than you could in real life, and not necessarily with a group of people, so I'm only logging actual physical plays. And this is still my fifth most played game. I love Sentinels the Multiverse to bits. I don't think I need to 
play the broken record or anything too often. It's just so enjoyable. This is the perfect superhero themed game for me. I know there are aspects of it like the slightly fiddly effects going off and the artwork which some people don't like. I personally like it and I can see why this puts off some people, you know, the game in general. But for me, love it. If you bring it to a game night, unless I need to get something played for review purposes, Chances are I'm going to want to pick Sentinels in the Multiverse. I love it that much. I've got every card there is for it, except for the most rarest of promos. And I put in a huge pledge for the Oblivion Kickstarter for the expansions, all the promos I haven't got, the big-sized cards with new artwork, and the collector's box all signed. Oh, it's going to be amazing. I cannot wait for next year when that comes out. It's sad to see it come to a close, but to be honest, I think I've got enough cards to really deal with it especially with what this kickstarter is going to bring me it's just going to be such a massive amount of variety it's insane it's had a lot of plays it's still going to get a lot of plays sentinels in the multiverse my number five number four was actually quite a laugh because it on the rankings it had one play more than my number five i have played this game once more then I have played Sentinels of the Multiverse. But it's still a top 10 game for me from last year. And it is my... It could be my favourite or is it my second favourite? Who knows? Nah, it's, it's probably my favourite actually. It's my favourite LCG of the bunch. And that is Lord of the Rings the card game. The Lord of the Rings card game. Such a cool idea to make it a co-op. A cooperative LCG. That's such a neat concept and it works beautifully because you build decks in most other collectible games and you're building a deck to beat the opponent. So you can't really just give a newcomer a deck because you know how it works and you're just going to beat them to the ground. But in an LCG co-op game, you build the decks hoping that your mate will be able to get it and understand it and you will help them through it because in the end, if you're playing this game with two players, you're going to want them to help you win the game. Therefore, you tell them how it works you get into the teamwork aspect but even without that i play this game predominantly if not entirely solo and i still love it the theme is rich the artwork is fantastic the variety you've got in the quests and the cards is great you know all the spheres and all the types of characters are represented and the saga expansions really elevate this to a new level where you can replicate quests from the movies and granted, you have to take some liberties with how some of them play out, but in the end, it's such a great experience to play Lord of the Rings, the card game, and maybe now that I've got rid of Game of Thrones, I might be able to play that one a bit more often. It's hard to get it to the table as often as I'd like, but still love it. I wish I could play it with more players. I wish I could be in America and play with the Tales on the Cardboard uh, gang, you know, and the, the Grey Company podcast, because they sound like a good laugh. Maybe I need to get on... Um, uh, what's it called, Octagon, and play some of those games. I don't know, there's just so much to do in so little time. But love it anyway. Number four, Lord of the Rings, the LCG. Number three is probably the game I have owned for the least amount of time, but boy does this get a lot of plays. You don't just play it once, you play it about eight times in a row when you get it, 
much like my number one in that respect, but this one still goes down well at conventions, at Dice Portsmouth Gateway events, and even just with regular gamers. People like this game, and I can see why. That is Spyfall. Spyfall is the great party bluffing game where one spy is trying to figure out where he is amidst a group of agents who all know which location they're at. Bank, space station, uh, concert, that kind of thing. And you're asking each other questions, trying to figure out who's on your team, who the spy is, what location the spy thinks he's at. And the questions can be vague, they can be detailed, you can't give too much away, but you can't be too vague either. And it just creates a good amount of tension and a good amount of laughter around the table as you constantly are looking at each other going, I think he's okay, but you, your question was shifty. You're a spy, aren't you? But you don't want to just jump in in the queues because it's got to be a unanimous vote. And if you get it wrong, you lose. So it's not like you can just instantly accuse everybody of being the spy. It's a great game. Doesn't matter if you've used up the locations. It's a perfect way to end the game night. Spyful, so many plays, but still only my number three. My number two is probably my... Yeah, it is. It's my second favourite LCG of the bunch, and that is Android Netrunner. Android Netrunner has had quite a lot of plays in recent months of this year, as I've been falling back on it when I got sick and tired of Game of Thrones. But even then, I'd still played it quite a lot, and it would have still been on this list, maybe just a little bit further down. But Android Netrunner is a fantastic, asymmetric two-player game. The asymmetrical nature of this game is beyond compare. The fact that you have the corpse and the runners both play with different identities, with different decks, both play with completely different playstyles in mind and completely different objectives. This is as perfect an asymmetrical experience as you can get and it's all done within this very immersive theme of a sci-fi cyberpunk Blade Runner-esque type universe which has even had a giant annual release you know a big book released explaining a lot of the lore of Android Netrunner and granted I haven't had time to really read up on a lot of the like intricacies of the lore beyond what's written on some of the uh, data packs you get as expansions and even then I haven't even read them all But certainly, if I had the time to read up on the theme more, I certainly would. Android Netrunner is a very interesting universe. The cards are great artwork. And just the concept that you are a hacker going into a corporation's servers and nicking information. You get to have bluffing games with this. You get to have mind games with your opponent as the corp as you hide traps in your servers hoping that they'll break it. It's just so well designed. I think this is... Uh, who's, who's it that did it? Is a, this is a Richard Garfield design, I believe. And I think this is his best work. I think it was a fantastic design, great game. I look forward to continuing with it for a long time. Android Netrunner. Before we get to my number one, here are the honourable mentions. King of Tokyo. I've burnt out on this game to be honest and I'll still play it but I no longer own it in my collection, not even the King of New York version which I'd played less, even though I prefer that version. But certainly King of Tokyo is one of the best games around for gateway purposes. It's still good fun, just 
having your own favourite monster and beating each other up, it works a treat. I think I've overplayed it now, I think there are better gateway games now, but still, it got a lot of plays before I eventually got rid of it, and it more than made up its money's worth. Still a great game, just not in my collection, Kina Tokyo. Telestrations. Telestrations is another one of those party games that you just want to play again and again and again when you do so. Now, I don't always get it to the table because I pretty much only want to play this with the full complement of 8 players, but it's so funny. I cannot draw my way out of a paper bag and it doesn't matter because you just do the Chinese Whispers game with pictures and it ends in hilarity. You do not score in this game, nobody follows those scoring rules, it's just pick the clue, start drawing, pass the dry erase boards around, and have so much fun and laugh your head off. Great game, one that always gets repeat plays when I can get it to the table, Telestrations. So my number one game, and again, this is a top 10 game from last year. Certainly, let's see, uh, one, two, three, four, five. Yeah, five games were in my top 10 from the top 75 last year. I reckon some of them won't be this year. We'll have to see when I do the list, but this one has had so many plays. It just gets played and played and played and played. It's had a little bit of a break for a while, possibly because it's difficult to use the expansion uh, characters in this without confusing newcomers. But if you've got a large group, I've had so much fun with One Night Ultimate Werewolf. It's so quick. It takes about two minutes to explain the rules. It then takes about a minute, minute and a half to go through the Eric Summer speech nighttime phase. And then you can make the game as short as you like. Usually we typically make it about five to eight minutes, five to ten minutes, and the game is wrapped up. You probably spend half the time playing it. No, yeah, half the time like going over the fun stories and the way everyone fought as you do playing the game. It's just so much fun. All the characters give some really cool special powers, there's a lot of bluffing, a lot of deception, and the negotiations and the debates just run wild as everyone's raising their voices to get over each other and try and figure out who's that werewolf, where the werewolf's hiding. It takes what probably was a good game, I never played the big version of Werewolf, but condensing it down into a five minute game is pure genius. It works so well, I need to get it out again soon because I kind of miss it. You know, there have been some other party fillers I've had to bring to the table, but I think One Night Ultimate Werewolf needs a resurgence. It's just usually a bit of a pain that if you go to a noisy pub or something, you can't really use it unless you've got one hell of a powerful Bluetooth speaker with you. But at my home, love pulling this out with a big group. One Night Ultimate Werewolf, my number one most played game. That wraps it up for this episode. Now, since I started recording this, the what I mentioned about my house is certainly still going on ahead. I have been told that the buyer is paying the deposit on Saturday, the 2nd of July. So if that goes ahead, I should be exchanging on Monday. Yes, please, 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 please happen. But that's all hopefully to come later. 
Certainly, I will sort out what I'm going to do about video equipment when uh, I get nearer the time, I suppose, probably when I've just moved in, and then I'll sort out a Patreon or a Kickstarter for it. I don't know the first thing about setting them up, so I'll just have to do some research. I know a few podcasts that have done it, so we'll see what they do. And after all, the Dice Tower and Game Boy Geek, they used Kickstarter to fund the next season, so we'll see how things go with that. In terms of reviews, I already mentioned quite a few earlier, but just a few others off the top of my mind. There is also uh, Via Nebula, the new Martin Wallace game. There will also be Legends of Andor, which I think is actually going to be released tonight or tomorrow. Certainly certainly around the first couple of days of July, you will see that one out, probably at the same time this episode airs. So you'll look forward to Legends of Andor review for that one. And finally, the Naruto Shippuden, well, I don't think it's Shippuden, the Naruto board game. I like the anime, even though it has gone stupidly into filler territory lately. Well, actually not lately. Naruto has always been known for stupidly long fillers, but when it gets going, I love the anime. And so a board game makes me feel a little bit uneasy, because usually these types of games don't tend to do well. But we'll see. I like Naruto, hopefully I like the board game as well. So, that's it for me. There's no conventions coming up in the next couple of months because I will be off on a cruise soon in mid-July, leaving on the 9th, coming back on the 16th to the Norwegian fjords. I need a break. I am sleep-deprived. I've been working hard at work. This next week is going to be pretty hard as well, long hours, and the blog has taken up a lot of my time. I need rest. I need I need recuperation, I need recreation, I need the works. And I've always wanted to go to Scandinavia, so I look forward to doing that. I'll be on the Britannia ship leaving from Southampton on the 9th. So if by fluke somebody who listens to this podcast happens to be on the ship, give me a bell. But I probably won't have my phone on the ship for anything other than a camera because of the cost of doing it abroad. So chances are I will be off the grid for the majority, if not all, of that period, 9th till the 16th. I'll try to have some content up on the site during that time, but in case I don't, just accept that occasionally us bloggers do need to take a break every now and again, and this is going to be mine. I don't tend to go on holiday that often, but this one should be a good laugh, and in the end, like I said, need a break. Really tired. Hell, I'm tired even after just recording this episode. You know, I've been to the gym, I've been working hard all week, and now I'm recording the whole of this episode. So it takes a lot of effort to get these done, I tell you that. You know, everybody else who's in this industry and does these sort of things, might take my hat off to you if I had one, because I know how much hard work it is. It is a lot. Anyway, that's enough self-pity. I'm going to head off and sort out editing this podcast and get on with some more plays and publishing that Legends of Andor review. So that's it for me for this episode. Join me later in July, early August, when I will start off my top 100. Yes, it's coming up. The top 100 games of the Broken Meeple. See you then. Take care. Enjoy playing games. Bye-bye for now. I appreciate you taking the time to listen to my podcast. Thank you for your continued support. If you wish to find out more, you can check out the website at www.brokenmeeple.blogspot.co.uk. Alternatively, you can chat to me on Twitter at The Broken Meeple or search for my Facebook page under, of course, The Broken Meeple. This podcast is dedicated to the gamers like you who play the games I love. So take care, have fun, and enjoy the hobby. You're listening to the Dice Tower Network. If you like this show, you might like the Secret Cabal Gaming Podcast or Board Gamers Anonymous. Find out more at Dicetowernetwork.com.